Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. And with me over here is Jim Shorty. And Jim, uh, good morning. What was that track we just did? That was a, a track called The Sound of Her Voice and uh, for Barbara Jean, who's Carolyn's mother. It was so, a nice, nice little instrumental track they put together in honor of her. Very appropriate for Memorial Day weekend. And uh, we'd like to uh, wish those that have served and their families a uh, good rest and a lot of peace. Mm-hmm. And for those that use this occasion to get together and and uh, spend time with friends and families, we hope you have a great celebration in all ways. Colleen's at the front door, Jim. Oh, okay. I will take care of that. Jim Shorney was on assignment last week, and he swears that he wasn't dancing. Was not dancing. But uh, we, uh, we may have video proof otherwise. <laughs> Doctored, doctored videos is what they say. So, we'll you, see. You know I can hear you when I'm out in the green room, right? Yeah, but you're on a delay, so <laughs> I can get away with stuff before you actually hear it. Okay, um, let's go to... Um, oh, our guest disappeared here. Oh, wow. I wonder if that's who was just calling in. I, I bet it was. Colleen's on the job out there. So. We've got a, a great show, Jim, today. We've got uh, uh, Shirley with the Capital Humane Society coming up. Yeah, she's back on. She's back on. <laughs> and this should be Charlene right here. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. The, uh, the red button on the phone, it clearly says <laughs> drop call. So I'm, 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 I'm only on my half cup of coffee so far. So I reached over and absentmindedly hit that, and I realized as soon as I did that, that I'd knocked you so, off. So, so Char- Charlene didn't hang up on us then. Oh. <laughs> I am back. Oh, no. She... Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> yep, it's great to be with you, Charlene. And how are things at the Capital Humane Society? Things are going really well. We've had our great volunteers in this morning already helping to make sure the dogs get out and the place is looking nice and clean. So we're very grateful for all the support. Peanut butter looking contest. How did that go? It went really well. I'm not sure if there were more human or dog winners, but everyone had fun. And the event was great. The weather was beautiful. So we couldn't ask for a nicer time. Okay, and that was the Tales and Trails Pet Walk that was last weekend at the Fallbrook Town Center. Lots of folks having fun, and uh, it's great to hear about those annual activities. We've supported the Capital Humane Society for many years, hopefully helping you folks understand that that's the first choice that you make when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Speaking of which, I think we've got some cats for adoption today. We do. We have some real cute ones. We'll start with Billy. I just love Billy's picture. He's got a great big yawn. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Oh, like you woke me up for this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I love that picture. He's about three years old, an orange tabby cat, short hair. Um, he was a stray, and now he is just as happy as can be. He's looking for a family that's going to keep him safe and offer comfy beds and lots of fun. Hey, come on, hurry up so I can get back to sleep. <laughs> Billy, show us your tongue. Uh, fun cat. Billy is joined by his buddy, and that is? Fidget. And Fidget is a beautiful calico, two years old, domestic short oh. hair. 
She's looking to be your one and only feline so she can soak up all of the attention. But she is really, really nice and wants to find a family that adores her. That's a pretty kitty. Yep. That expression is also pretty uh-huh. Pretty cute. <laughs> yep, yeah, very alert. Okay, we're we're on a roll. We got Billy and Fidget, and then there's Juan. And he is a two year old neutered male domestic medium hair, has fluffy black and white fur. Very handsome cat looking for a home where he gets lots of attention and love and playtime. Uh, he'll be an adorable sidekick. Uh, that is one one cool cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one wow. is the only number <laughs> one that you'll key. ever know. <laughs> Billy Fidget and one. Okay, pictures are up at the capitalhumanesociety.org. Oh and it's not the, it's just capitalhumanesociety.org. And here's Charlene with hours open today and tomorrow. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, and we are the uh, Traveling Minstrel <laughs> Show here. We sing about the, the pets for adoption. And we do stand-up comedy, too. <laughs> okay, so we've got now dogs for adoption. Let's see if we can continue this uh, this frivolity here. We've got great dogs, and who's up first? We'll start with Baby Girl. She's two years old, a shepherd pit bull mix. Still looking for a great home with someone who's dog savvy and can provide her with training and care and exercise. Uh, she is available by appointment, so if you are interested, you would just give us a call and let us know you're interested in meeting Baby Girl. Well, if this keeps up, we're going to have to give Baby Girl co-host status on the show. <laughs> Yeah, we'd love to have her adopted by somebody. You Take bet. a look at her picture, and all these pictures you can click on and read more about the, the pet for adoption, uh, if they have special needs, etc. So Baby Girl kicks off our dogs for adoption. She's a great dog, and she's followed by... Otis. And Otis is a lab mix, about a year old. A very sweet dog, wants, again, to have lots of attention and love, uh, likes being around people. Um, is looking to be an important member of a new family. Uh, if you like Labradors, you'll want to ask about Otis. Okay, great-looking dog. Again, you can click on his thumbnail picture there and, and uh, expand that and read more about that, that neat pet. Otis was the name, Jim, and, and Colleen of the ghost in the elevator at the terminal building. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. We called him Otis. Well, maybe we could get uh, my my old friend from back, way back, Otis 12, could adopt this dog, and the dog would be Otis 13. <laughs> I always had tr- Otis 12. Otis 12. Diver. Diver Dan, Dan Doobie. 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 Yeah, okay. <laughs> you've, got, you've got that great memory, Jim. I, if you don't know what we're talking about, Google it. <laughs> Baby girl Otis and... Trigger. And Trigger is a Dachshund Labrador mix. He's a short little guy, <laughs> but has all the energy and enthusiasm of a Labrador. He's about a year old, a neutered male, a happy, friendly dog, really likes to go for walks and have loads of fun. So he would like to be adopted soon by a great family. And what's the mix again? Dachshund Labrador. Okay, that's an interesting mix. It is more, more Dachshund there than Labrador, I think. <laughs> I had a dachshund poodle 
uh, that his name was Ralph, and he was one of the smartest dogs that I've ever met. He was just incredible. Yeah, so. yeah. Trigger has a lot of intelligence, too. Okay, great uh, great dogs this morning. Baby Girl, Otis, and Trigger. And, Charlene, what are your hours open today and tomorrow? We will be open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. And uh, in memorial, uh, in memoriam, would you like to remember anybody in your family who's who's passed today? Oh, that's a very kind. I guess all members of my family are so important to me, so I keep them all in my memory. Okay. Thank you so much, Charlene, for all that you do, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. Charlene and friends of the Capital Humane Society, and make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. You swear you weren't dancing last weekend, huh? I was not dancing. But you watch other people. I, I, yeah. Kind of hard to dance when you've got a camera in your hands. Was it... Uh, was it like um, free form ballet? It was uh, a mix of everything. A mix of uh, everything. Ballet, jazz, tap, modern. Uh, Carolyn likes to create a, a good mix. Carolyn, of course, being Carolyn Olson, one half of Enigma. Enigma's official music that we play in the program. Yep. Singer, songwriter, and dance teacher extraordinaire. And where's her studio? It's in Auburn. Okay. And uh, we did the recital at the, the very nice remodeled auditorium at Peru State College, which was really cool. Cool. I'm Scott Colborn, and next up is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, she's someplace over there, and I'm pointing east. Out yonder. Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing okay. We're having a nice uh, Memorial Day weekend here. My best also to Joe. What what does Rosemary and Joe do on a memorial weekend? What do you what do you have uh, planned? Well, we're visiting with some friends this weekend and uh, taking it easy. You know, steaks on the barbecue, that sort of thing. Young lady, I hope you are taking it easy because you've been cranking books out. I mean, I I, know. I look at your Facebook page and just released. But, whoa, wait a minute. And then there's another one. Tell, tell me about some of these books coming out. I'm excited. Well, don't forget, uh, I'm not writing them all these days. <laughs> so, um, but, yes, I just published um, a dynamite book called How to Be a Paranormal Detective oh, by Greg Lawson. It. And Greg is a longtime law enforcement officer and uh, worked in crime detection. And he's written a wonderful book on how to use um, police procedures and crime mm. detection procedures for evidence gathering and questioning to the paranormal to improve investigation. Uh, excellent addition to anybody's library. What's the title again, Rosemary? It's called How to Be a Paranormal Detective. Okay, and uh, if folks, if you've got a computer or smartphone dialed up, if you went to Visionary Living Publishing.com, you're going to find some of these books that we're talking about. Uh, interesting. Well, um, I'm going to send a contact request through your website to Mr. Lawson. I, if he has time, I'd love to have him on the show, Rosemary. Well, a book is on its way to you, Scott, and he would make a wonderful guest. He's a very popular speaker at conferences. His workshops sell out. Uh, it's a whole novel approach to paranormal investigation that 
uh, you know, takes it to a, a more sophisticated level. Mm-hmm. A much needed uh, mm-hmm. next level because, uh, you know, Lloyd Arbach, who you know, Lloyd and I have talked so many times about the lack of training that people have got. They watch a, a reality show and they get on Amazon and order equipment and suddenly they're a Ghostbuster. And they have no idea how to use anything. Right. Well, first of all, all the equipment that's being used in uh, ghost hunting was, um, very little of it was built for ghost hunting. It's, uh, you know, people have adapted things that they think will reveal the presence of ghosts, like an EMF meter. An EMF meter was never intended to register the presence of ghosts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of the devices that have been specifically built for ghost hunting, they've, they've been catering to the reality shows so that they've got some bells and whistles to show. But the thing, here's the crux of the matter, Scott. What do you calibrate these things against? Uh, a device, a machine that measures things has to be calibrated against mm-hmm. some baseline. And where's the baseline when it comes to ghosts? That's a very good question. I, I appreciate that because I... This is Jim, by the way. Being in electronics as I am, I I completely understand the calibration. And I, you're the first person I've ever heard bring up that question. And nobody thinks of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever have a baseline for calibration. But um, at, at any rate, uh, what Greg has to say is of uh, importance to everyone in the field who takes yes. it seriously. And uh, he also discusses uh, a lot how to question people, uh, that there are good and ineffective ways of uh, questioning people to get the right information out of them. And uh, a lot of people don't uh, know much about that either. Okay, we enjoyed, by the way, our conversation with with Dr. Davis. Um, Another new book you've got out called Unseen Forces the uh, integration of science, reality, and you. And uh, I didn't realize until I checked my notes that we'd had Dr. Davis on um, uh, previously. So I enjoyed again talking with him. It's a dynamite book, Scott, and it's been doing very, very well. Um, I'm quite pleased with it, and so is Bob. He's gotten a tremendous amount of media exposure for it. Uh, so it's it's cooking right along, and he's uh, working on an outline now for book two. This is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and when she's not uh, writing her own books, she's publishing books, and she's got a, a, a wonderful array of books coming out, including, uh, Jim, look at this one, mm-hmm. Planet Bigfoot. Planet Bigfoot. <laughs> That's a cool cover. I like that. And what's, what's, what's this book about, Rosemary? This is another in the Fate Anthology series. It's a collection of uh, about three dozen uh, articles written by experts and researchers on various aspects of Bigfoot. And I've got an article in it, too. And it covers history, evidence, encounters, experiences, theories, hoaxes, uh, photographic evidence, uh, it's one of the biggest anthologies that, well, it is, to date, out of all the fate anthologies I've done, it is the biggest. And um, there was so much that I, I just couldn't leave things out. Uh, I, I wanted to include as much as possible 
for this book to be comprehensive. And so it's a wonderful overview of the history of uh, what we know about Bigfoot and some of the permutations that researchers have gone through in analyzing evidence, uh, the debate over whether or not Bigfoot is physical or interdimensional, and uh, uh, was the famous uh, Roger Patterson film hoaxed or not? Mm -hmm. I think the jury's still out on that one, frankly. Um, and uh, anyone who's interested in Bigfoot, even if you're, uh, you've been in the field a long time, uh, will find this to be a valuable resource. Uh, this is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and I'll give you a couple of websites again. Um, her, her writing and creative website is visionaryliving.com. There's a free newsletter there you can sign up for. And then her publishing arm is visionarylivingpublishing.com. Um, and you've got, of course, this brand-new book that she wrote. Um, it's an uh, anthology, again, from Fate called Slips in Time and Space. That came out earlier this year, and it's one of my best sellers, um, which didn't surprise me because I know there's an intense amount of interest in time travel and mm -hmm. and time slips. And um, there's some interesting cases in this book, as well as some theoretical physics material on his how how might time travel be possible. I cover the Philadelphia experiment. Um, people who have both the pro and con side of it and um, the Bermuda Triangle and Devil's Sea, where people experience a lot of time warps. And then spontaneous time displacements, too. There's some very odd cases on record. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got, uh, let's see, a previous guest, uh, Joey and Tanya Medea, Watch Out for the Hallway. And uh, what a whale of a book that is. Uh, this, along with Greg's book, is, is another must-have for paranormal investigators. Uh, Tanya and Joey are crack investigators, and Tanya is a very good medium as well. And uh, they had uh, a rare opportunity to mm -hmm. spend two years documenting quite a range of phenomena in a very haunted library in North Carolina where they used to live. Uh, interdimensional, uh, earthbound souls phantoms, um, poltergeists, uh, men in black, uh, an incredible array of, of things manifest in this library. And so they're very, uh, very good about documentation. They explain how they set everything up, how they document everything. Um, they uh, took groups through uh, the library to help with investigations and corroborate evidence. It's a very good piece of paranormal investigation work. Uh, Rosemary, I hope you have a great weekend, restful, good food, um, and of course family and friends. I really appreciate you and what you do, and I can't wait to uh, get a connection made with Mr. Lawson. Um, any, any last words today before we, we uh, go to our next segment? Well, I'd like to wish you all a happy Memorial Day weekend, too. Uh, and I, I would guess your parents are probably gone, right? Yes. Okay. 
uh, in their memory as well, Rosemary. Thank you so much for all you do, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Or excuse me. Okay, thank you, Scott. <laughs> next month. <laughs> okay, Bye. all the best. Rosemary from All Points East, and she's hunkered down this weekend, going to enjoy the Memorial Day weekend with her husband, Joe, uh, as she should. Uh, her website again, uh, for all those books we just talked about, visionarylivingpublishing.com. I'm drinking coffee and uh, enjoying my morning. Uh, Colleen, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good. Mm-hmm. Do you have a cup? or? Yeah, I got yeah, a we, cup. We got her taken care of. Oh, good. And what kind of coffee are we drinking today? <laughs> this is the uh, Sulawesi. Mm, very mm-hmm. good. Yep, I backed off just a little teeny bit on the potency. <laughs> oh, so that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it should be very, very enjoyable. So. Yeah, it's, it's very good. Um, okay, we're going to do the bottom of the hour break. And then we've got um, a friend of mine uh, who I really enjoy talking to, Dennis Balthauser. He's coming on the show. We're going to be talking about all things Roswell, as well as why is that uh, case from 1947, why is it still so important? Why is it one of the linchpins of us trying to understand the UFO mystery? So stay tuned. We've got a whale of a show for you. And see, I can actually say that name, Whale, because I played in the rock band Whale. Mm -hmm. I did. So I'm, I'm licensed to use that. Okay, we've got a wheel of a show for you. It's Colleen, Jim, Scott, and you guys and gals will be right back exploring unexplained phenomena. Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. 
My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And Jazz in June, presenting live jazz every Tuesday in June at 7 p.m. at 12th and R Street near the Sheldon Museum of Art. Jazz in June is a family-friendly event for all with a market at 5 p.m. with food vendors, crafts, and more. Details for the season's lineup, VIP seating, and meet and greets at jazzinjune.com. And by The Mill at Telegraph, presenting Jazz After Jazz, every Tuesday in June from 8.30 to 10.30 p.m. on the patio at 21st and L, with live music, drinks, and appetizers. Details on Facebook and millcoffee.com. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Colleen and Jim. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. And uh, before I bring up our main guest, I want to talk to you guys and gals about the importance of uh, the Give to KZM Radio, Give to Lincoln uh, fundraiser. And we took part in that officially a couple of weeks ago, and it runs all through May. Uh, the goal is for us to raise enlisted donations, uh, $40,000 by the end of May. And so far we've got about 15,000 towards that, so we've got a ways to go. <clears throat> Every dollar that we raise through a listener donation gets uh, uh, matched up for a potential pool of $450,000. So all the nonprofits are uh, gonna take their, their total donations and then uh, percentages are assigned. Percentages are assigned then uh, and then taken from that $450,000. So the Lincoln Community Foundation, a lot of sponsors have pooled this amount of money. It's the biggest pool yet in the history of the event. So your donation to nonprofit, non commercial KZUM goes a long, long ways. In addition, we've got a requirement through the, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that we have to hit a certain level of locally raised money to qualify for grants through them. And they set the bar uh, annually at a little bit over $300,000. So thus the importance of, of listener donations to try to hit that bar on that level as well. Uh, you can call us at 402-474-5086, extension 1. Or for a lot of you folks, you can do it uh, through the secure website at kzum.org. Uh, give a little because we all try to give you a lot. And as we've said for many years, if you've been listening to our show, put your money where your ears have been. And we certainly appreciate your donation. Thank you very much.
In 2014, my kids and I made kind of a big car trip, just about uh, 3,000, 3,500 miles. And one of our points was that we wanted to go to Roswell, New Mexico. I wanted to actually be in that town to spend time there because of the crash that occurred in 1947, all the historical interest in New Mexico that I've had over the years. And so we spent uh, just about five days in Roswell. And I had the good fortune of meeting uh, Dennis Balthauser. Dennis is a researcher of all things connected to the Roswell crash. When he retired as a, a civil engineer from Texas, he relocated and moved to Roswell so he could be right there in that town. Uh, none other than Stan Friedman have said that the experts go to Dennis Balthauser for the latest breaking news on Roswell. So we've gone bypassing the experts right to the source. And it gives me a lot of pleasure to welcome back to the broadcast my friend and colleague, Dennis Balthauser. Dennis, good morning. Good morning, Scott. It's great to have you uh, on the program. Uh, how is your wife, Debbie, doing? She's doing good. She's been teaching school and had the last day yesterday. She was substitute teaching for a while, and then she was permanent teacher for a while. And last yesterday was the last day of school, so she's relieved that that's over. <laughs> uh, the the Lincoln kids. I've been around a lot of kids this week, and they've been really excited also to have their last day, uh, and then a, a whole summer of activities here. So, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed Scott, Dennis. Have you escaped all the bad weather. Uh, we've we've had our fair share. Uh, so far, we're okay. Uh, there there had been a lot of tornadoes in uh, our area. We had uh -huh. a, a swath in central Nebraska, which would be west of where Lincoln is, about a week ago, where they had out of one storm they had over thirty tornadoes. <laughs> wow, were reported. So, uh, my I think daughter's been going through that. She lives in southwest Oklahoma. Oh my and goodness! For the last week or two, they've been dodging tornadoes, and they got a lot of flooding now. It's a real mess over there. Yep. We, uh, if if the sunlight holds, I'm going to try to get out and cut my lawn later today because the grass is so high. Good luck. <laughs> I've I've got to maybe rear it back on the back two wheels and just kind of run at it or something. You mentioned the kids. Are they doing okay? Yep. Melissa and Asher uh, send you their best, and and uh, folks, it was so enjoyable that. We, uh, we met Dennis for one of his Roswell UFO tours. And uh, Dennis showed up in his car. He picked up Asher and Melissa and I. And uh, we spent two, better than two hours in his car that morning driving around Roswell. And Dennis showed us a lot of the backstory for the Roswell crash on where people lived, um, where they worked out of, where some of the uh, focal points were for the recovery and then the start of the cover-up. And he told us also some interesting stories about uh, old New Mexico, the big cattle drive days, uh, cattle wrestling, the good guys, the bad guys, the outlaws. And so we got a lot of Old West history also. And uh, my kids still talk about that. They'll say, hey, Dad, remember when we went on that, that car tour with that friend of yours? Do what? 
My, my kids still remember that, that morning we spent there, Dennis. Is that right? That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, the, tour, the, the tours, you know, I started these about five years ago, and nobody ever thought about them. And the people that book them are out of Oregon. They do World War II tours to Europe. Heard about my research, wanted to know if I'd be interested. I thought, you know, maybe I'll do two or three a month. I'm doing two a day, five days a week. I've been averaging 300 a year for the last five years. <laughs> right now, I'm booked into October. Fantastic. It's unbelievable. I've had people from all over the world. I've had people from London, Tokyo, China, South Africa, Australia. Mm-hmm. Had my first Russians a couple of weeks ago, and about a month ago, I had a couple from France that didn't speak English. That was a little tough. She understood a little bit, so she translated everything for her husband. The tour takes about two hours. That one took three and a half hours. And, of course, my wife thought I got abducted because I didn't come back home. (laughs) But it's been unbelievable, Scott. I just had no idea. And the interest is just tremendous. Most people are curious. They've heard of Roswell, but they don't know a lot about it. And I'm able to give them a lot of history about the town in New Mexico. And, of course, I knew some of the first-hand witnesses back in 47 before they died. Mm -hmm. Had long conversations with them. So I go by the houses where some of them lived. I have a photo, album, a photo album where I show pictures of them and share what they told me. And I don't try to convince them anybody. That's not my job. But I try to share honestly what I know and have learned over the last 30 years and then share that with the public and let them make their own decisions. Dennis, you had a, a great DVD presentation, too, that you gave me a copy of. Uh, mm-hmm. The Roswell Incident, Then and Now. Are you still mm-hmm. making that available for people that want to purchase that? Yeah, yeah. I have that available. Well, actually, Scott, I do. I have four areas of research that I do. Primarily, I do Roswell. That's been my main research. I also do underground bases. People don't know what's going on under their feet. And I think most military bases are probably interconnected with tunnels because of satellites. You can read a newspaper from 200 miles up. So nothing can be done above ground. Uh, In 2006, I was up at Area 51, the secret base in Nevada. I did a couple lectures at Rachel, a little town nearby, went out and harassed the guards at both the gates. And Area 51 has 22 levels below ground. They're They're serious about security. The signs say that use of deadly force is authorized. That means they can shoot you, and they will. It was opened by the CIA in 1955 to test a U-2 spy plane. We didn't find out about it for 30 years in the 1980s through a Russian satellite picture. So they can keep secrets. We've proven that. In 2001, I was put on the advisory board of the Great Pyramids of Giza in Egypt for a few years. They have disbanded that group now, but I still have the interest in in the pyramids. Well, I watched. Those are all, avail- those are all available on my website in DVD form. The yeah, lectures. I watched the Roswell incident then and now last night, and mm-hmm. I just enjoyed it tremendously. Um, it's you- got a lot of information in it that people don't know about, and the fact that I knew some of these first-hand witnesses kind of. I feel it gives me an advantage, and, you know, I don't try to pressure people with 
with the information. I just share honestly what I know. So, Dennis, uh, a thumbnail sketch of what we believe happened in 1947. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a ranch foreman 65 miles northwest of here, not the owner, but the foreman. At night during a thunderstorm, he heard a sound louder than thunder. Next morning, he went out on horseback, check his sheep, look at his windmills from the storm, came upon a debris field, pieces of something scattered three-quarters of a mile long by several hundred yards wide. Now, the rancher had no idea what this stuff was. He had recovered weather balloons. They had to tag on them from the Air Force for a reward. So as a poor ranch foreman, he picked up a piece of the balloon, take it down to the base, turn it in, get a couple extra dollars, he could use the extra money. But he didn't know what this was. So he loaded some up in his pickup, came to town, he gave it to Sheriff Wilcox. The sheriff didn't know what it was either, so he contacted the military. Got a hold of Major Marcel, the top intelligence officer in the world at the time, with the atomic bomb group that was here. And I always need to tell people, you have to realize who the military was. That was the 509th bomb group. Those are the same guys that dropped the atomic bombs in Japan and the Second World War. So it's kind of ironic that we would have the best military in the world here in Roswell when we had the UFO crash. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were the best at keeping secrets, too. That worked against us. When the military found out the rancher was in town, they got him, took him down to the base, and locked him up for five days and interrogated him over a weather balloon. While he was in jail at the military base, the military went out and cleaned up the field more than once. They went across that pasture, probably shoulder to shoulder like a vacuum cleaner. And when he got back to the ranch, there was nothing left. And then the rest of it developed into the cover-up. General Ramey, uh, the Roswell Daily Record, put out a, an article on July 7th, July 8th, I'm sorry, saying we have in our possession a flying saucer that was captured on a ranch near Roswell. The next day, General Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas, at Carlsville Air Force Base, he put out an article saying it was nothing but a weather balloon. So 14 hours from the time we have a flying saucer, it became a weather balloon, according to Ramey. And the cover-up started, and it's been going on ever since. The story died about three days after it happened. Nothing was said or done about Roswell for 30 years. In 1998, 19, oh, let me back up. In 1978, Stanton Friedman found Major Marcel by accident retired in Louisiana. And that's when the research began in 1978. And we've been doing it ever since. It's important to talk about uh, the ranch foreman, Mr. Brazel, that he was aware of what weather balloons looked like, what they felt like. Sure. Because he'd seen them before on the ranch. Not only him, but Major Marcel and a lot of the people with the Atomic Bomb Group had been to schools about balloons of all kinds. The first, first excuse was that it was a flying saucer. The second excuse by Ramey said it was a weather balloon. And then in 1994, the Air Force came out with a report saying it was a mogul balloon. That was a high-altitude balloon that we used to check the Russians to see if they were doing nuclear testing. Well, the Russians didn't do nuclear testing until 1949, two years later. 
And then two weeks before the 50th anniversary in 1997, the Air Force came out with a thick report saying they never mentioned the bodies the witnesses talked about, and the Air Force said they were anthropomorphic crash test dummies. <laughs> the dummies weren't developed until 1949 and not used until 1953, six years later. So it's just one excuse after another for the last 70 years. Uh, one of the theories that, that uh, Dennis covers in his video presentation is the Japanese uh, Fugo balloon. Yeah. And these they, were... The Japanese had sent out hundreds of balloons across the Pacific Ocean, catching the high wind coming across, and had uh, some kind of infirmary things on them where when they landed in, the con in our country they exploded or turned into fire, and there were a lot of fires on the West Coast because of that. But that's just another excuse of what they think it was, that it, it never worked out. I gave a presentation, Dennis, uh, back in 2014 at a conference mm -hmm. um, on the importance of listening to the witness. Mm -hmm. And um, you have had the, the great fortune of being seated across the table from well, some... Well, you know, I'm, I was with the UFO Museum from 96 to 98. I was on the board of directors and the investigator. Two of the three founders of the UFO Museum in 1991 were Walter Hawk that wrote the press release on the orders of the base commander saying we have a flying saucer, and the other one was Glenn Dennis, the local mortician in 1947. I got to spend every day with those two gentlemen for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I knew Jesse Marcel Jr., the son of Major Marcel, had did lectures with him, had dinner with him and his wife, uh, communicated by email and phone with him for several years before he passed away. So I knew some of the first-hand witnesses. Mm -hmm. And I feel fortunate that I had that opportunity. It's not like reading a book or watching television. I got to see their facial expression, their body language, their emotion, and I feel really fortunate that I had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So the device that crashed, mm -hmm. we know, was not a weather balloon. That's correct. The Air Force has tried with including that weather balloon hoax four different possibilities they've tried to float that mm -hmm. and what would you guess the number of first-hand witnesses are that actually were at the crash site and or were at uh, the hangar and saw the debris in the bodies would you guess uh, 200 as far as all witnesses there's, there's several hundred and that's an, that's an interesting point, Scott, because our judicial system is set up where a person can be put away for life in prison or even executed based on the testimony of one witness. We have hundreds of witnesses, and we can't get in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as people that actually saw the bodies, that's pretty limited as far as I know. Uh, of course, Mac Brassel, the rancher that found the debris, he said he saw the bodies. Walter Hawk, who wrote the press release, saw the bodies in the hangar and described what they looked like. I did a 
I did an oral history on on uh, Walter several years ago, and in that interview, he did admit and describe what the bodies look like. Then there's the nurse that Glenn Dennis, a mortician supposedly knew, who was involved with the examination of bodies at the hospital at the base. She drew pictures of them. So there's very few people that we know that actually saw the bodies, but there are some. And most of the descriptions all coincide with each other. Mm -hmm. The uh, International UFO Museum in Roswell is uh, a mecca for a lot of people that are interested in this case. Uh, the kids and I well, went... Well, they get 180 to 200,000 people a year. And that's four times our population of 50,000. And that generates about $180 million in revenue for Roswell. So I think I'd be safe in saying that if you ask a local person about Roswell, like me, they'll say something happened here in 1947 that's still covered up. But what they do know is that it generates a lot of revenue for this town. Mm -hmm. $180 million for a little town of 50,000 people is a lot of money. The, the uh, museum is, is, is uh, a place that my kids and I, we spent, I think, three to four hours one day and didn't, mm -hmm. didn't get it all taken uh, Oh, you probably spent a week in there oh, with easily. all the testimonies and affidavits they have, and they are finally upgrading it, and it which has been needed for some time, and they're, they're starting to upgrade the, the museum, which is good. Uh, and the the gift shop, they were really glad to see the Colborns from Nebraska because we dropped a lot of money in the gift shop there. And I've got memorabilia now in my den that I can look over and say, yep, that's from our trip to Roswell. And, and <laughs> well, downtown Roswell, it's all pretty much centrally located around the museum. But there's a lot of gift shops downtown, of course. And as a serious researcher, I have a few problems with that yeah. commercialization of it. But I do understand the revenue it generates for the city. Mm -hmm. They have a, a huge event um, over the Fourth of July weekend that uh, is coming up again, and uh, you yeah. Last year that brought in thirty-six thousand people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the wife and I usually go out of town for the festival. <laughs> 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 you got people dressed up in tinfoil hats, dogs dressed up like aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that would that would be my choice also. I just, you know, uh, I get enough people the way it is. I don't need to be around yeah. those crowds. So I would I would advise. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned Stanton Friedman a while ago, and did I send you my tribute to him? Yes, I I read the tribute. Let's okay, Dennis. Let's uh let's come back. Let me take the top of the hour break, and we'll come okay. back and talk about Stan and your association with him here. All right. Good. Uh, Dennis Balthauser. I'm going to give you some uh, information on how to find him. Truth Seeker at Roswell. I've always liked that website. Truth Seeker at Roswell.com. And you'll find also on that website a bunch of links, including the one for his tours. The direct link for the tours is Roswell. UFOTours.com. I'm Scott Colborn with Colleen and Jim. We're going to refill our coffee cups. You guys and gals do the same. We're going to be right back with more conversation right after this. 
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. Contributing to KZUM's Give to Lincoln Day campaign is easy. Just give us a call at 402-474-5086, extension 1, or visit kzum.org where you can check out our new t-shirt and other thank you gifts you might be eligible for. Every donation between now and May 30th helps KZUM to a larger share of the $450,000 match fund being made available through KZUM Give to Lincoln Summer Day. Concert Series is every Thursday at 7 o'clock through August 1st at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. Join us for a family-friendly evening in the great outdoors with food trucks and live music this week by Columbia, Missouri rhythm and blues trio Hooten Hollers. Plus food by Nitro Burger. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Butheris Macer and Love, and Shirts 101. That's this Thursday, May 30th, 7 p.m. at Stransky Park. Find out more on Facebook and kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. My guest next week is Peter Bebergel, and he's the author of Strange Frequencies, the extraordinary story of the technological quest for the supernatural. Two weeks from today is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, The Bible and Flying Saucers. That book just got republished, and there's a new 17-page introduction that Dr. Downing has written as an update. 
And three weeks from today is Sandra Biskind. She's the co-author with her husband, Daniel. Codebreaker, discover the password to unlock the best version of you. My friend and colleague, Dennis Balthauser, the researcher who lives in Roswell, New Mexico, is our guest this morning. And uh, Dennis, if we can, let's talk about the uh, passing of Stan Friedman. Uh, I'm still trying to recover from that. I known and worked with Stanton for the last 23 years. I, I got started in this research back in the, oh, the 1970s. I'd lay in the backyard and look out in the night sky, wonder what. And then in the 80s, I started hearing about Roswell through books, and one of them was Stanton's. And uh, I retired from the highway department in Texas in 1996. Moved to Roswell, was with the UFO Museum as uh, the investigator on the board. And during the uh, year of 1996, a year before the 50th anniversary, was the first time that I got to meet Stanton. I hadn't heard about him and known about him, but I had never met him. And I was overly impressed with the research he had done and the way he shared it. Stanton uh, was one of a kind and will never be replaced. He's a nuclear physicist. He is a valedictorian at high school in New Jersey, where he graduated from high school. And then he went on to get his bachelor's and master's in physics from the University of Chicago. And I noticed that some of the lectures I did with him at conferences, people would refer to him as Dr. Friedman, and he's, he was quickly correcting them, telling them he was not a doctor that he had a master's, not a, not a doctorate. Mm -hmm. But I got to develop a friendship with Stanton over the years, and it, it was totally different than any friendship I've had with any other researcher. And I think he respected the fact that I had a civil engineering background and the type of research that I did, and I can honestly say I learned a lot from Stanton mm -hmm. over the years just spending time with him. At conferences, many times we'd go to dinner at night together and sit there and talk and visit. We had him over the house here for a couple of times for breakfast when he was here for the festivals. And he always enjoyed getting away, getting away from the crowd and, and having a little time alone. But uh, in my editorial, my tribute I wrote to him, if you remember, I referred to a funny moment I had with Stanton up at Aztec, New Mexico, when we were doing a lecture there. Stanton and I were staying in a bed and breakfast, and I had the first lecture the next day, so he was going to go with me, eat breakfast, and then help me set up. Well, I came out of my room about 6 o'clock in the morning, and Stanton Friedman is standing in the hall with a T-shirt, pair of slacks, no shoes, reading some kind of little tabloid that he found on a table. And I said, Stanton, what are you doing? He said, I locked myself out of my room. I looked at Stanton, I said, you're a nuclear physicist. I'm not here to take care of you. <laughs> and we laughed about that for years. He probably wouldn't like how I repeated it, but that, that was one of the funniest things I ever did with Stanton. <laughs> now, he retired last year. He had officially announced his retirement. 
but he couldn't do that. So he was continuing to do some lectures. In fact, he was supposed to be here this July for the festival and will not be, of course. Mm-hmm. He had done a lecture in Ohio uh, a couple of weeks ago and lived in uh, Fredericton, Canada, in New Brunswick, Canada, at dual citizenship. He did the lecture in Ohio and was on his way back home. And what I understand was he had a heart attack in the Toronto airport. So Stanton finished his career doing exactly what he wanted to do and liked to do, spending hours and hours on airplanes to do lectures. Mm-hmm. He did lecturing in uh, 10 Canadian provinces, something like 19 different countries, and did over 600 colleges. The man didn't stop. He was 84 years old when he passed away. But for all those years that he'd done the research, he never stopped. And he, he wound up doing what he liked doing as the last thing. He was, he I was missing. I, I really will. He was the guy that if you, if you said, okay, the, the people that are interested, that are open-minded skeptics about the UFO mystery, if we wanted to have somebody uh, at a debate to debate the yeah. opposing team, uh, Stan was the guy. That's uh, right. Because yeah. he had... He, he, did, he challenged everybody. He didn't, he didn't back down to anybody, and him and Phil Class had to go around a couple of times. He wound up getting a $1,000 check from Phil Class because he proved Class was wrong about something. Yep. And he always had a lot of pride in doing that, being able to get to <laughs> Phil Class. He was one of the debunkers. Uh, he he passed on on May thirteenth of this year. Right, uh, right. Dennis, one of yeah, the. Yeah, missing. I send my condolences to the family, to his wife Marilyn and the children, and I got a really nice email back from Melissa, his daughter, thanking me for the condolences. Mm-hmm. One of one the of fe- the. The festival won't be the same because he was here every year for the festival, and it just won't be the same without him. A quote, Dennis, that I like so much that um, has been one of my guiding, uh, guiding lights in trying to understand this whole thing has been, Stan uh, said years ago that the whole argument about UFOs is not whether all these reports and photographs and witness accounts, it's not whether they're all true and correct. The whole argument is if just one is true and correct. Yeah. If one, just one, is an extraterrestrial spacecraft, that's all we need. We don't need the hundreds of thousands of reports and sightings. Just one. Right. And, I, and I'm the type of person, I can go either way. Uh, I feel like we've been lied to for 70, I'm going on 72 years about this. If it turns out not to be aliens, that's fine. I'll go fishing. I don't need the frustration I've gone through for 30 years doing the research, but I don't think we've been told the truth. Yeah. And, and that's all I want. I want somebody to come forward and say, yes, it's real, or no, it's not. Give us one way or the other. Don't keep giving us excuses. You know, there's been other crashes around the world. You don't hear about them because they deny them. Reynolds and Forest in England, Brazil, Kingman, Arizona, Aztec, New Mexico. The oldest one I know about was in Aurora, Texas in 1895. So this has been going on for a long time. And people ask me, why don't they, why don't, why did they have it covered up? 
I think it's one word. Control. Our government won't admit to anything they can't control, and they can't do anything about it. And you uh, have written an interesting paper also that I've got your, your manuscript that you were so gracious to autograph for me, the selected articles. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've got a really interesting piece in there on threats. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand the, the, the complexity of this issue. Let's suppose that any one of those four explanations that the Air Force has put forward is true. You pick, pick any one of those four, okay? So with that being said, why would you send a team of guys to Sheriff Wilcox, the sheriff, and tell him that if he talked about the crash and recovery that they would kill him and they would kill every member of his family. Uh, Sheriff Wilcox had two young daughters at the time who I've, I've met, interviewed, and both I passed on. But the girls told me that as little girls, when the military came out to the sheriff's office to recover the debris that the rancher had brought in, they took the two little girls aside and said, if your mom and dad ever talk about this, you'll never see them again. Mm-hmm. And they never forgave them for that. And my wife talked to a woman here in town who was in school at the time, and she said the military came into the schools and told them that if your parents talk about anything, you're to ignore it. So, you know, the, these threats were real and, and still today. If I get the name of a new witness, and by the way, I haven't had a new witness in over two years. The ones we've interviewed have died. The others are 90 years old or more. We don't know if they're alive or where they're at. So that's become a problem trying to find new witnesses. But when I get the name of a new witness, I'll immediately call them and say, what do you know about Roswell? Invariably, they'll say, I wasn't there. Well, I happen to have the 1947 Roswell Army Airfield yearbook. It's like a high school yearbook. Mm-hmm. Individual pictures of the guys that were here, name, rank, and squadron. I said, wait a minute, I'm looking at your picture. You were here. Then they go quiet for a minute and say, yeah, I was there, but I'm not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. If I pressure them, they hang up, Scott. 90 years old. They're well aware of the threats made on people. If they have a small military retirement, they can't afford to lose it. But more importantly, they're worried about their safety and their family's safety. Whole families have been threatened over a weather balloon. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, you folks that are listening to our conversation here, uh, again, just, just consider this. Um, Dennis can't show you an artifact from the crash. He can't take you into a room and show you the, the body of an alien. If it was just a weather balloon, a mogul balloon, an anthropomorphic crash test dummy, if it was just any one of these explanations, why would they go to the lengths of intimidating and threatening people? And as I understand from talking with other researchers, Dennis, there is surveillance that's being kept 
on some of these folks and their relatives to this day. Yeah. And you know, one of the interesting things about this, Major Jesse Marcel, who was the intelligence officer, top intelligence officer in the world at the time, with the atomic bomb group, and his son, Jesse Jr., who was 11 years old when his daddy brought the stuff home and they played with it in the kitchen. Both of them guys were career military guys. And both of them were promoted from major to light colonel before they got out of the military. So I think that was done for two reasons. One, to keep them quiet, and two, to help their retirement. I have, I have about 12 or 14 commendations and recommendations on Major Marcel, the intelligence officer, both before and after the UFO event. Colonel Blanchard was the base commander out here, head of the atomic bomb group. And by the way, he was in charge of the atomic bomb group at the age of 31. He had to be sharp. And he went on, he left Roswell, left, the atomic bomb group dropped the bombs on Japan during the Second World War. And then they came to Roswell and were stationed here when the UFO event happened. And then they transferred over to England. And a lot of the guys went with him, with the base commander, when he went over there. He wound up at the Pentagon, a four-star general. Assistant Joint Chief of Staff, considered the Joint Chief. He died in, uh, at the age of 50. He never got a day to enjoy his retirement. He uh, had a physical in the Pentagon in Washington, and the next day he had a massive heart attack in the war room and died at the age of 50. I don't think there's any controversy around his death. I think it was just pressure and stress. Mm -hmm. But those are the little things that I've learned over the years about these guys that were involved. And it's just, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Dennis, about the theory um that there was more than one craft. That's Stanton's uh, thoughts. Stanton has has uh, promoted that for years. He thinks there were two craft at a mid-air collision. One went down west of here in the plains of San Agustin, out near Socorro, New Mexico, and the other went up here on the ranch where Mac Brussels was. Mm -hmm. To me, that's never been proven, and I think the the ranch site where Mac Brassel was is probably the, the only site that's a valid mm -hmm. because of the reporting that the, the rancher himself did. Is it, is it, I've never been able to, to get to that actual site. Is it hard to get to? Because it's on private property, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and uh, the owner has changed again recently. And people, they don't want people up there. You've got to realize here in New Mexico we have what we call open range where there's no fences, and cattle and sheep running loose on the ranch, so the ranchers really don't want anybody up there running around. I've been there several times with researchers and with film crews, and there's nothing to see. The Sci-Fi Channel did a dig up there a couple of years ago, and they have a marker there. It looks like a little tombstone, a little granite marker at the, at the site. And most of the land in New Mexico is BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. But you have to go across private property to get to the site, which is BLM land. That brings up another important thing. 
couple of years ago, the Bureau of Land Management put out an environmental impact study on the ranch, and I got a copy of it, and I was reading it, and in there it said, be careful in this place because of the possibility of aliens. <laughs> well, that got my attention. I went out to the BLM office. It was signed off by seven people. I said, who wrote this, and where did you get the information? Oh, that's just a, that's just a joke. That's in-house. That won't be in the final copy. I said, here's my address. Send me a final copy. So a couple of months ago, months later, I got a copy of it. In there, it says, this is the alleged site of the 1947 Russell incident. Now, to most people, that wouldn't mean anything. But to me, that is the Department of Energy, the, uh, the BLM, Department of the Interior, saying that something probably happened there. That's big, coming out of the government. Yep. We've got uh, uh, a lot of interest that still goes back to this incident, the Roswell incident. But, by the way, Dennis, um, why do you think they called it the Roswell incident? Because it's 60, well, because 65 miles north and west it's of Roswell. It's town, little town, little ranch town of Corona, uh-huh. about 12 miles from the town of Corona. But because the military was here, it became the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. When my kids were and I were, were down there and we had the good fortune to, to have dinner with you and Debbie and, and take mm-hmm. your tour and spend time there, one of our half-day trips was down to Carlsbad. Right. And driving back from Carlsbad back to Roswell... Folks, we hit the most severe torrential downpour that I have ever driven a car in. And I've been in some gully washers. It was nothing compared to this. Yeah, we, this old desert heats up in the daytime, and when we do get rain, and our normal rainfall here is about 10 inches a year. Last year, we wound up with 8 inches of rain. Now, we're not on any restriction of the water because we have a good supply underground, a big aquifer. So we're not on any restrictions. We just don't get much rainfall. Debbie is originally, my wife is originally from Ohio. She can't get used to me getting excited when there's a cloud in the sky, <laughs> thinking it might rain, but usually doesn't. But when it does, I go stand in it because it's an event. Yeah, it, we, were, we were afraid to pull over because of the fear that, <laughs> that we would get hit from behind by somebody coming up behind us. So mm-hmm. we went down to about 30 miles an hour and put our flashers on, our blinkers on high, and it was white knuckle for about 40, well, you know, I've, 40 miles. about 200 miles from any major city, Albuquerque, El Paso, Lubbock, Texas. And when people go and do my tour, if they're going back to Albuquerque, I make sure... And I emphasize, be sure you gas up before you leave Roswell. The first gas station going to Albuquerque is 95 miles. Mm-hmm. So I don't have time to go get them. And I tell them, be sure you're gassed up before you leave here. And people are just amazed with this, the, the vastness of this state out here and the openness of it. I have a friend that runs a ranch south of town, raises cattle and sheep on the ranch. That ranch is 323 sections. People that don't know what a section is, that's 640 acres or a square mile. Wow. That ranch is 323 square miles. Wow. Now, we've got some places up in in north Nebraska, up in the Sand Hills, that Mm -hmm. probably don't 
don't reach that holding, but it's the sort of thing where you see a sign saying the Adams family, and it points down this gravel road, and it's about 10, 12 miles down that road to get to their, their house. Well, out here, I'll tell people, you know, as they drive around, they see gates along the main highway with ranch names on them. And I say, you don't see the ranch house, do you? No. The ranch house is 20 or 25 miles down that dirt road. If you see a pickup truck parked there at the gate at the highway but no one in it, that's a 10 or 12-year-old child driving that pickup. If you can see it through the steering wheel, he can drive on the ranch. He can't drive in town. So he'll leave the ranch house about 5.30 in the morning, drive 20 miles down that dirt road to the highway, parks a truck, waits for a school bus. The school bus ride True. could be two and a half to three hours to get to school. He'll get home about 5 o'clock at night. Now, they've started homeschooling the kids, and that's working out pretty well to keep them at home. But it's a whole lot of nothing out here in Roswell, in New Mexico. And Ros uh, New Mexico is probably one of the best-kept secrets in the country because they hide a lot of stuff in plain sight. Uh, I don't think I showed it to you when you were here, but we have the International Law Enforcement Academy down here at the base. International in Roswell. That's run by the State Department. And they just graduated a bunch from Nigeria and Kenya. Most of them are police officers and judges. I think it has something to do with immigration, terrorism, or constitutional government. But I, I'd wager that most of the people in Roswell have no idea that the International Law Enforcement Academy is here in town. In the Down south at, at uh, White Sands, you have the world's largest missile training center. Up north of both Santa Fe and Albuquerque, you got Sandia and Los Alamos National Labs, highly secretive laboratories. Sandia has 12,000 employees. Los Alamos has about 6,000. And I've been told that Los Alamos is the most educated city in the United States. Mm -hmm. It is. Nothing but scientists, physicists, and PhDs. Odd West at Socorro. That's the BLA, very large array. 27 satellite dishes tied together listening to space where the movie Contact was filmed with Jodie Foster. So this is, the, this is the type of information I share on the tours when I do my tours. And most people appreciate the fact that I give them some history about Roswell and New Mexico because most people don't know anything about it. You've got uh, a little town south of Roswell called Artesia. And years ago, I did some research on an allegation of an underground base at Artesia. Mm -hmm. And I had the good fortune back in the 1990s to uh, be in Albuquerque. So I drove down to Artesia and I met the, uh, the editor of the paper. And um, she put a small story in the paper about my interest. And mm -hmm. we had uh, four or five people that then contacted me based upon that article to talk about uh, some strange goings-on around Artesia. So they it, confirmed it. Yeah, it's a land, of, a land of mystery, and there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Yeah. You know, if, if I was an uh, intelligent alien life form, a person, if you will, from another place, 
and I had any knowledge at all about humanity, this would be an area that I would probably be interested in. Well, stop and think, Scott. Uh, we tested the first atomic bomb 100 miles from here at White mm-hmm. Sands Trinity Site. Mm-hmm. We tested one in the Pacific Ocean, and we dropped two on Japan to end the Second World War. That's four nuclear weapons in 1945. Mm-hmm. Two years later, we have a UFO crash 100 miles from where we tested the first bomb. Where they're sitting out there looking in, wondering what are these clowns on Earth up to? Mm-hmm. I don't think they want us in their neighborhood with nuclear weapons or the attitude we have. So I think they're keeping an eye on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, they've been oh, researching yeah. the, the Aztec, Aztec UFO crash. You mentioned earlier that there had been a number of these events. Uh, my friend Paul uh, Blake Smith has written the book uh, MO41 about what he thinks happened in uh, Missouri in 1941. Right. Uh, and so there are a number of these reports. I've, I've learned in my lifetime that if it's mechanical, it can break. Yeah, yeah. And I have and always... That was a little different because... That was 10 months after Roswell. That was in March of 1948. Mm-hmm. That was a 99-foot craft intact. It didn't, it didn't break up. It made a forced landing. And they had some oil field workers up there that saw smoke up on the mesa. Went up there, looked into the craft through windows of some kind, and saw 13 badly burned bodies slumped over a panel. So my question is, were they here checking on what happened in Roswell, or was it a totally different incident? Mm -hmm. Scott and Suzanne Ramsey have done some amazing research on that. I've been working with Scott for, well, since 1997, I believe. He's been to archives all over the country and spent fortunes of money trying to research that, and I believe it's a real case also. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's take the bottom of the hour break here, Dennis. We'll be back with more things about Roswell, maybe some underground base stuff, too. You know, not too many years ago, we were at a different location uh, for the broadcast site of our radio station, and I had Bill Hamilton on the air. Uh, 30, 30 minutes into the interview, I said, Bill, tell the listeners about your allegations of the alien presence on planet Earth and underground alien bases. Boom, just like that. I'm not kidding you. The transmitter went off the air. Oh, really? So don't be surprised when I come back from this break that I say underground alien bases a whole bunch. We'll see what happens. Okay, um, another reason to go down to Roswell is that they have got some incredible restaurants. And I had the good fortune of eating dinner with Debbie and, and Dennis Balthauser. My kids and I enjoyed, uh, gosh, I wish I could think of the one restaurant where they actually brought over and made the, the guacamole dip right at your table from scratch, start to finish. Sorrentos. Yes, what a place, wow. I am, <laughs> I'm salivating to beat the band right now. And right, right around the corner from the museum, Right around the corner on a little side street was a small family-owned Mexican restaurant that we ate at that was just yep. incredibly good. 
we have some of the best Mexican food anywhere. Right oh my here. goodness! Okay, we'll we'll come back with more conversation with Dennis Balfhauser. Um, I'm with Dennis. You know, if if I was to go to Roswell, I would probably avoid the big hoopla with the people in tinfoil hats uh, the July Fourth weekend. But definitely um, consider one of his tours. As you heard Dennis say earlier, they're booked way in advance. So the website that you go to is roswellufotours.com. That'll actually help you um, to make arrangements. And you can find more information on the tours, itinerary, what he covers, through his website. Easy to remember, it's Truth seeker at roswell i'm scott colborne with colleen and jim our special guest dennis balthauser we're talking about all things roswell and uh, it's a show i hope that you appreciate if you enjoy broadcasts like these please consider a donation to the kzum radio give to lincoln fundraiser you can do so at kzum.org or by giving us a phone call at 402-474-5086. Hey, and Jim and uh, Colleen, we've got a program at 12 noon that's called Beta Radio. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure who's going to be up. It's always a surprise. It's always a surprise, <laughs> but it's a kind of a test bed, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it's very fun. So Beta Radio follows us. More conversation with Dennis Balthauser right after this. Stay tuned. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues with listings here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, May 25th, Duffy's Tavern hosts Quake and Dalek One at 9. Evan Bartles starts at 8 p.m. at Bailey's Local. Matt Cox is at the Zoo Bar at 6 p.m. with Dustin Arbuckle and the Damn Nations. Skylark begins at 8 p.m. at Crescent Moon, and Jelly Roll comes to the Bourbon Theater at 8. On Sunday, May 26th, the Playmore Ballroom's Country Night features Jake Gill and Dirty Boots at 8 p.m. with Dancing Lessons at 7, and Zoolarius brings stand-up comedy back to the Zoo Bar at 8. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM.
Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Uh, Peter Bebrigal is the author of Strange Frequencies, the extraordinary story of the technological quest for the supernatural. He's our guest next week. With me today is my friend and colleague, Dennis Balthauser. And uh, Dennis, we've talked about um, Stan Friedman and his legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to remember anybody in your family at this point, this being Memorial Day weekend? family? Yeah. Mom and dad? My dad was in the military, my brother was in the Air Force, and I was in the Army from 59 to 62, which tells you I'm pretty old. And they sent me to Greenland twice. I never forgave them for that. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's an important weekend. Uh, we got to remember our troops and, and what they sacrificed so that you and I can do what we do and not be worried about it. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, extremely important that we keep our troops in prayers and keep them safe and thank God that we live in a country where we do. And we're, we're interested in the truth, the truth about what happened in July of 1947 in Roswell. Mm -hmm. And if all this is a big misdirection, as you said, heck, I'll grab my fishing rod and go fishing. Sure. But there but seems I don't to think be... we've been told the truth. And it's kind of hard to get young people involved because kids grew up with Star Trek, Star Wars, The X-Files, so it's no big deal to them. John Greenwald Jr. has the blackvault.com. Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend anybody go to that site. He just wrote a book. The boy, he started at the age of 15. He's in his 30s now. But he has an unbelievable website of all the freedom information requests he's done to try to uncover some of this stuff. And it's absolutely amazing. But he's one of the exceptions of young people. Young people, I'm always, I'm always happy when I have young people on tour. And to be able to share this research with them and hopefully open their mind up a little bit to, to looking into some of this stuff. Because as old guys are getting older, and like Stanton just passed away, I'm 77, so I don't know how many more years I can do this, but I'm going to continue as long as I can. But we need to get young people involved, and young people need to start asking questions and demand answers. This cover-up stuff has to stop. We can't continue to have it. And as, as you said earlier, from our remembrance of Memorial Day and the weekend here, it's also for the people that have gone before us. Mm -hmm. The gentlemen, the gals in the military that have served faithfully, and uh, they've, they've kept the secret of what yeah. happened in July 1947. Um, what do you see, Dennis, is... Do you, do you think that if they, if, they, if they, being the government, the military, if they said, yes, there was an event there, does that open for them a can of worms that they just as soon not open? Well, I 
think it opened a can of worms of a lot of other stuff that they lied about. So if they went public with this and said, yeah, we've lied to you for 70 years, the bottom would drop out of that. But I don't look for it in my lifetime. I don't think disclosure will happen in my lifetime. I'm too old. But hopefully in people's children and grandchildren, maybe they'll know the truth. That's, that's my hope, is mm-hmm. that someday the truth will be known, whatever it is. And we can move on from this. But for the time being, uh, I think we need to continue to ask questions and, and see if we can find answers. Do you think that there's still somebody out there that you haven't talked to yet uh, that has part of the puzzle? Well, I've always thought that the people that were up there, the military people that cleaned the, the, the pasture up when it happened, somebody had to put a piece of that in their pocket. They had to. And today it could be in an attic or a basement somewhere, and some young person finds it, they may think it's junk and throw it away. That's scary to even think that. Mm-hmm. But somebody had to pick up a piece of the stuff. If we ever get a piece of the metal, we'll probably have to go overseas to have it tested at a laboratory because most of the college colleges in the United States get subsidized by the government. So we couldn't probably do it in the country, but we could do, we have places overseas where we've made contact where we could actually do the testing probably. Mm-hmm. I, I know, Dennis, the Fund for UFO Research years ago did some uh, video affidavits. And mm-hmm. I got a copy of that uh, VCR tape, and I think those are very compelling. Uh, oh, yeah, they are. The and unfortunately, we didn't do much videotaping on these witnesses. I did the one with Walter Hart, with mm-hmm. Wendy Connors, a historian. But uh, these others, we haven't got them on videotape, so it's really our word against theirs and what was said. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the... Um the secretive group that I call the secret keepers that wants to keep this behind a locked door in a, in a vault, they are counting on the passing of time and yep. people dying so that it makes their job easier to retell or reinvent history. Well, I don't think, and this surprises a lot of people when I say it, I don't think the presidents, any of them, are in on this. The president is a temporary employee, eight years maximum. He can't be trusted. He doesn't have the security clearance or the need to know. Right. And if you don't have a need to know, you're not going to find out. I met Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man on the moon, Apollo 14. He grew up just south of Roswell. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him one day about it, and he, I said, what do you know about Roswell? He said, I can tell you it happened. I said, how do you know that? He said, my parents knew the rancher, Terry, when I was in, that were involved, but I can't tell you anything else. But coming from Dr. Mitchell, that was important. Mm -hmm. What I'm hoping is we can get some deathbed confessions, that somewhere somebody will decide, okay, I'm on my deathbed, I'm ready to talk. And if we can get some deathbed confessions, because I don't know that we're going to find any more witnesses. The guys are 90 years old or more. So we run, in, we run into a problem time-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis, uh, underground bases. Mm-hmm. 
I did a series of interviews with Charles Hall where he talks about being a weather observer in the Air Force out of uh, Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, yep. stationed on temporary duty assignment to Indian Springs. Mm-hmm. And north of there, in the uh, 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 secure, huge amount of land that, that they've got, uh, were these uh, four to five weather shacks. North of there in the mountains, he claims, was the, the base. And that these ETs had a base that was constructed for them back in the 1940s and 1950s. He even surfaced a, uh, a newspaper clipping talking about a facility that was being built and I forget the equation of dollars in today's money, but it was incredible. And that was about the only mention publicly of this. Uh, part well, of I your- have a little problem with that because of the fact that, and like I said earlier, Area 51 is one of my areas of research. It wasn't open until 1955. Right. And we know that the material from Roswell and probably some of the bodies was shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, known as Wright Field back then. Today, it could be at Area 51, better security. But Pappy Henderson was one of the pilots that blew the stuff up to to Wright Field. Mm -hmm. And we never met him or talked to him, but his wife told us that they retired in Hawaii, and they were in a grocery store one night, and there was a tabloid there on the checkout counter said something about Roswell. Pappy looked at his wife and said, I guess I can tell you what I did. And she said, what did you do? He said, I flew some of the debris and bodies from Roswell to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That was the first she knew about it, after he had retired. Yep, these guys and gals have been keeping the secret. Um, Yep. Dennis, the, the uh, underground base idea would involve the ability to somehow bore underground, to do excavation underground. And you've got an engineering background. Is that, does that make sense to you? Can, can that be done? Well, yeah. Uh, this has been going on for some time. We have a lot of people that are qualified through mining and and highway work through tunnels through mountains and railroads and things like that. I found a drawing, a patented drawing of a nuclear boring machine that was developed at Los Alamos here in New Mexico in 1973. That thing goes through the ground, melts the rock and dirt, pushes it into the wall it just made, and never, nothing ever comes out of the ground. Well, they got several different types of boring machines. Some of these things are humongous. They're three, 400 feet long. They assemble them underground. And many times they just leave them there. They'll, they'll drill a side tunnel, put it in there, and just leave it rather than bring it out and reuse it. But the equipment is available today to do this. And I think there's a lot going on that we have no idea about. Uh, the advantage to having something underground like that would be that you avoid uh, any satellite or, or plane. Yeah. Well, you uh, can read a newspaper from 200 miles up, so nothing could be done above ground anymore. 
most countries do that. The, the Koreans, the Iranians, all those countries have underground facilities. And that's, that's, that's common today. What do you think about some people that I've, I've kind of held this in abeyance that have said that, that this underground earth boring is to the extent that there are actual tunnels that connect parts of the country? Oh, yeah. Like I said earlier, I think most of the military bases are interconnected with tunnels. Uh, we have facilities over in the East Coast. Uh, Raven Rock, Pennsylvania is the Department of Defense underground facility. There was a hotel that has been exposed where the Senate and the Congress had an underground facility. During the 9-11 attack, uh, Vice President Cheney went underground at the uh, White House. President Bush was flown from Louisiana to the base up in Nebraska, I believe, mm -hmm. and went underground yep. until he went back to Washington. So we know these facilities exist, and there's no telling how many of them and for what purpose. FEMA. Federal Emergency Management Agency has over a hundred underground facilities. They have databases on most Americans. They probably know more about you than your mother. This stuff is scary when you start researching and looking into it and finding some of the facts that, that back it up. Dennis, I, I hope that your career uh, continues for a long time. Uh, well, at 77, I'm not making any promises, but I hope. Are you still physically uh, able to get around? I've got a left knee that's been bugging me. Well, yeah, mornings are a little tough when I get out of bed, but other than that, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I think I'm in pretty good shape for 77, really. Well, again, the, the kids and I enjoyed meeting you in 2014 and oh, really my enjoyed the tour. Um, the Billy the Kid stuff... Uh, <laughs> had me fascinated the the old west some of those yep. stories um so i hope dennis Scott, you can... i'll be honest with you i enjoy your interviews as much as any i do because you get into it and you've done your own research which is good makes the job easier for me to talk about things and well, i do appreciate that thank you dennis my best to you uh and my best to your wife debbie let me know if anybody listen to the show and has any questions or anything you got my email address and stuff yes i'd love to come down there and see you again okay do it <laughs> okay dennis thank you Take again care. bye dennis balthauser his website is truthseeker at roswell.com there's also a contact function there that you can send dennis a hello and the direct link for his tours roswell ufotours.com I'm Scott Colborn and uh, it's been an enjoyable morning talking with Dennis we had uh, a car trip that started in Lincoln we went down to um, Amarillo, Texas and then we went over to Roswell and we went up to Estes Park and then from Estes back to Lincoln so it was a huge trip that we did and a uh, lot of fun uh, met some great people along the way. I had a chance. In fact, Jim and, and Colleen, you probably remember that we did the live hookup from 
a motel room mm -hmm. yeah. in 2014. I had Clifford Stone uh, and talking about his recovery investigations that he took sure. part in in the military. I had Dennis Balthauser on the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that. That was mm -hmm. a fun show. The, you know, it, it, interesting that Dennis mentioned Omaha because what he said is true. That was That's my, my home stomping grounds. I grew up within 20 miles of that base. Sack Air Force Base. And it was a big deal when George Bush was there on 9-11. On mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity years ago, this was probably late 60s, I had toured the underground command center with a, a civil air patrol group when I was a kid. So that, that was quite an experience. And uh, yeah, it's, it's there. It exists. Neat stuff. Okay, so I know what I'm doing. I'm going down to Superior, Nebraska on Monday to pay my respects to my family that are buried in Superior and Hardy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jim, what are you doing this weekend? Tonight I'm going up to Omaha to hear Enigma play. Oh, cool. Yeah, they're, they're at my favorite wine bar up there, so uh, it's going to be fun. Yep, well, we sure appreciate their music that we use, and mm -hmm. you're going to hear it coming up here in just about 60 seconds yeah. here. And they are very appreciative of, of all the attention. They, they are grateful that you play the music. Uh, Colleen, what are you up to this weekend? Um... Nothing much, probably just some relaxation. Um, normally, if we were up near Macy, we would also be preparing for... Uh, they have really big dinners mm -hmm. up in Macy. And one of the traditions that we do is that we set up um, near, our, near our loved ones' headstones and have mm -hmm. lunch and dinner there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people find that really weird. They're like, wait, you go to the cemetery and... You know, That's eat food around your life. Nothing, nothing wrong with <laughs> and that. And they're like, I yeah, it's, not, it's, it's deeply it's personal. It's different customs for, mm -hmm. di for different people. And, and that's what um, I say that you should do is you should take some food for your parents. Because mm -hmm. that's what we do. We bring them food. Mm -hmm. You know, we bring them flowers. And sometimes we even bring them, like, candy or something. And that's what we do. We just, like, leave it next to their headstones. And the groundskeepers know what to do with the... Uh, you know, the excess stuff, mm -hmm. so. And uh, this has been a, a big week of people graduating, uh, people getting out of school, and uh, understand that they are uh, not going to be opening the pools in Lincoln because of the uh, cool yeah, weather. Yeah, the water is not warm enough yet. So I kids are antsy about that. Get out the garden, those kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stay tuned now. We've got beta radio coming up. And I'm Scott Colborn. It's been great to talk with Dennis Balthauser this morning. And uh, we appreciate the conversation we had with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary and Shelley from Canada a while back gave us a whole bunch of prepaid phone cards. So we can say that today's broadcast was made possible in part through one of their phone cards that we used. So Rosemary and Shelley, thank you. And, of course, Charlene with Pet Talk. We started the program with Dogs and Cats for Adoption. They're open this weekend. I'm going to go have lunch and uh, a great day. And that's what I wish for all you folks listening is a great day. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your donations to KZUM Radio. Give to Lincoln through the website, kzum.org, or over the phone at 402 474 5086.
Until next week, walk in beauty.